Jewish time. So, uh, we're ready to start. We have a, a fascinating lecture here tonight, Dr. Schiffman. Uh, it's fascinating on the ride over. Look forward to the ride back. And I look forward to the lecture. And uh, thank you very much. You want to turn the lights off? But while you're turning off the lights, I'll just tell you that I once took. We gotta turn this machine off. That on. You're gonna have to come turn the machine on. You didn't show me how to turn it on. I once took a class where I was the only student, except for the other students. Five other students were Protestant ministers, and we used to go out for a, like a, a there was a break, so we were supposed to be back at a certain time. So once one of the guys sitting there says, "Oh, we're late," so the guy says, "No, that's Protestant time." <laughs> so Jews think they have Jewish time, but these guys have Protestant time. So it seems like it doesn't make much of a difference. Okay. Now most people generally have the misconception that the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls started in 1947, when that now famous Bedouin goat went into the cave and found some Dead Sea Scrolls. But the truth of the matter is otherwise. The truth is that what happened was that in the 1890s, some manuscripts were being brought back to England from what is called the Cairo Geniza. A Geniza is a collection of old manuscripts that are put because of respect into a closet somewhere, eventually to be buried. And in this synagogue in Fustat in Old Cairo, they were putting away these old Hebrew manuscripts. And two women from England brought some of them back to Solomon Schechter, who later became the head of the Jewish Theological Seminary, but was in New York, but was originally on the faculty of Cambridge University in England. Now Schechter, ah, we were going backwards. There we go. Schechter was able, when he went to uh, Cairo, to recover a number of manuscripts, actually 250,000 manuscript fragments, which is much bigger than the Quran Dead Sea Scrolls like. And he found there a text never known before in two manuscripts. One manuscript was from the 9th or 10th century, and the other from the 10th or 11th. Now this manuscript, or these two manuscripts, were of a text that now is known as either the Damascus document or the Tzadokite fragments. And two copies of this manuscript were, excuse me, ten copies of this manuscript were eventually found in ancient manuscripts among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that in reality, the first Dead Sea Scroll was discovered in the 1890s and published in 1911 based on these medieval manuscripts. Now this publication set off a debate about who the sect was which is exactly like the one that was set off after the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 47. Some people said that these were the texts of the Pharisees, who were the forerunners of the Talmudic rabbis. Some said that they were the priestly Sadducees from the high priestly aristocratic group. Some say that these scrolls were from the medieval Karaite sect, the literalist Jewish group that rejected the Talmud, the oral law. Another group claimed that they were Christian, some other people said that they were Samaritan. The Samaritans are the leftovers of the North Israelites who were exiled in 722 BCE, who continued to exist even up until our own time. As you can see, any group of Jews that anybody could possibly come up with as a possible suggestion was put forward, 
and there was no resolution of the question, no matter what happened. Now, eventually, however, this uh, debate sort of quieted down as a result of World War II and the Holocaust. And then immediately after the war, the action shifted to this area over here known as Qumran, which is a four-hour donkey ride from Jerusalem. There, in a particular cave, which we now call Cave One, a Bedouin boy entered into the cave, and in that cave, they found some jars, and in the jars were some cloths, and in those cloths were some scrolls. Now, these documents, of course, were the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we call the seven original scrolls, and they are all on exhibit now in the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem at the Israel Museum. Now, what would a group of Bedouin boys do with some scrolls that they found in the caves? So they first brought one lot of them, three of them, to this fellow Kondo, who was a combined shoe salesman or shoemaker and antiquities dealer in Bethlehem. And the second lot went to Athanasius Samuel, who was the head of the Syrian church in Jerusalem. Now, the lot that was in the hands of Kondo was quickly bought for the soon-to-be state of Israel by Elazar Sukenik. Sukenik was the founder of the Archaeological Institute of the Hebrew University. Some of you may know him indirectly. There is a site in Israel that everyone visits, an ancient synagogue floor called Beit Alpha. In the 20s, after the Hebrew University, we're talking like 1929, 1930 already, after the Hebrew University had just been founded, Sukenik was sitting in his office with nothing to do. One day, luckily for him, he got a call from these kibbutzniks that they were building a new dining room and they came on an ancient synagogue. Sukenik went out there and that was the first Israeli-run modern archaeological excavation. Israelis had worked on excavations for various Christian groups from the United States, England, and France, but it was the first one that they ran. In any case, Sukenik immediately recognized that the scrolls were ancient, mostly from the second and first centuries BCE, and he purchased the first lot on the very same night that the uh, so-called partition plan resolution was passed, which at that time, in 1947, was considered a holiday for Israel. Today, things are changing a little bit because Resolution 181 has been raised again, and you probably have been following. But uh, in any case, that was a very happy day, and he noted that he had recovered also an Isaiah scroll and that that Isaiah scroll contained the prophet's prophecy, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, which he thought was a kind of almost gift from heaven on that very same night that the UN voted to establish a Jewish state. Now the problem was that Tukenik was not able to buy the material that was in the hands of Athanasius Samuel, the head of the Syrian church. Well, Yiga al-Yadin, the famous Israeli archaeologist who was Sukenik's son, was in the United States on a lecture tour in 1954. And a friend of his, who was a journalist, called him up to tell him that there was an ad for Dead Sea Scrolls for a quarter of a million dollars and would make a great gift for a religious institution or academic institution. So, of course, Yadin was that guy. 
He said Harry Orlinsky used to teach at the Hebrew Union College in New York to make believe that he wasn't Jewish and to buy the scrolls. He called himself Mr. Green, which doesn't seem to me a very convincing way to make believe you're not Jewish. And Orlinsky couldn't say a sentence anyhow without a Yiddish word. But my guess is that Athanasius Samuel knew what he was doing anyhow. Athanasius Samuel got the quarter of a million dollars and he lived happily ever after in Lodi, New Jersey. And that's where he established his Syrian church. When he died recently, he was succeeded by a Reverend Minu who has moved the church to Teaneck, New Jersey, where it now sits among all the kosher Chinese restaurants and pizzerias. So it shows you a rather interesting history, but that whole church was established with the money from these scrolls. Now in the meantime, between the finding of the scrolls in 1947, the first seven, and between the period we're about to talk about in the 50s, the War of Independence of Israel had been fought. And the Jordanians had invaded this portion of mandatory Palestine that we call the West Bank or the Judea and Samaria. And it was in this area that the scrolls had been found. And therefore it was the Jordanians who sent soldiers to find out where these scrolls had come from. They quickly located this wadi, this dry riverbed, right near the cave, the famous cave four from which some of the scrolls would soon come. And they realized that this was a site where the scrolls actually came from. Now, what happened there was that the Bedouin kept exploring on their own and kept finding scrolls. And in 1956, the Bedouin found what we call Cave 4. Now, Cave 4 is a very special cave. First of all, it's very close to what we generally call the Qumran settlement, the buildings we're going to see in a few minutes. Second of all, you can see that there are holes that supported shelves in antiquity. When the material from this cave was sorted, it was found that there were parts of 550 scrolls. Not large parts, but parts of what in antiquity was a library in this cave of 550 scrolls. And these scrolls are the material about which the big fight was raging in the late 80s and early 90s until all the material was released and until the scholarly project to publish the material was properly reorganized. But Cave 1, which we saw before, and this cave called Cave 11, were not really library caves. What these were apparently was places where scrolls were stashed. Apparently close to 68 CE, when Qumran was destroyed, this place we're talking about, on the shore of the Dead Sea, they put some scrolls into caves for safekeeping. Remember the Roman War raged from 66 through 70 destruction of the temple, through 73 the destruction of Vasada, the last stand. And so during that period, apparently some scrolls had been stashed. Now this cave 11 would eventually yield a psalm scroll, an Aramaic translation of the book of Job, and also a rather interesting document called the Temple Scroll, as well as a whole bunch of smaller fragments. This was a place in which there were whole scrolls like K1, whereas in K4, which had the largest number, the scrolls were in very, very bad shape when they were found, even if in antiquity they had been complete scrolls. Now, if you're the Jordanian government, and in the 50s, somebody comes up to you with a whole bunch of Jewish scrolls, 
and you got to get somebody to sort and publish them, who do you get? The only option is to get some Christian clergy who are participants in religious institutions in Jerusalem. So they got then Father Millick, who's now Mr. Millick, the late Father DeVoe, who did the archaeological excavation in Qumran, who never really properly published. The late Father Starkey, who died not editing a single text, although he was a very great Aramaist. And a little piece of John Allegro, who invented the idea that the scrolls disproved Christianity. In fact, the scrolls have no really direct relation to Christianity because they're Jewish documents that were composed before Christianity started, a matter we will come back to a few more times. Now, people are always asking me two questions about this group of people. Number one, were they anti-Semites? The answer is some were, and some were very nice people. Number two, people want to know, were they all Catholics? The answer is, they weren't. Originally, there were four Catholics and four Protestants. One Protestant became a Catholic, one died, one quit, and one became an agnostic. So that's about it. Then there were Catholics. Now what they did, and by the way, this is the back of John Strugnell, the fellow who was thrown out as editor in 1989 as a result of an anti-Semitic interview that he gave to an Israeli newspaper. Maybe he figured nobody would read it because it was in Hebrew, but it didn't work. Okay. Now, they had all these materials, 80 to 100,000 pieces. Imagine you have a jigsaw puzzle. What you do is you get a brand new jigsaw puzzle with 1,000 pieces. You open the box, you throw away 900 pieces. Now you shake off the pieces you have left and you do the jigsaw puzzle. You won't have 100 pieces left, you'll now have 70 because you can put some together by chance. So they had 80 to 100,000 little pieces. We're not sure now. They sorted those little pieces into bigger pieces. And then they laid them out on 1,200 of these glass plates, which now we don't use glass, we use rice paper because of the advice of some particular experts on this who know how to preserve documents. And in any case, the 1,200 so-called plates constituted parts, as we mentioned, the sum total of about 800 manuscripts that would have existed in ancient times from a total of 11 caves. About 10 or 11 of the scrolls are scrolls, and the rest of it is not really scrolls, but manuscript fragments. Now, it was also realized very early by the Jordanians that the site where the scrolls came from, which right next to the caves had a whole bunch of buildings, had to be excavated. So they sent, again, Father DeVoe and Father Millick and G. Lancaster Harding, who was a Britisher, who was a leftover from the mandate, who went to work as head of the Antiquities Department of Jordan. And they excavated this thing that we call the Qumran Complex or the Qumran Settlement. And let me just point out a few highlights that will help us to understand what we're going to see in the next few minutes. First of all, if you go there now, where this map orientation is, is a uh, restaurant and also they sell books and t-shirts with Dead Sea Scrolls. You can buy books by me at double the price what you pay for them in this country. But in any case, that's what that is. There is also now a gazebo in case by walking 20 feet from the restaurant you're already exhausted and you need to get some shade. The main parts of the building that we are going to address in the next few minutes are the defensive here. This room here, which is the one we talk about as a scriptorium. The gray, which is the water system, including the round cistern, a variety of other cisterns, and mikvahs that we'll see, Jewish ritual baths. 
Then we have to look at the assembly hall and the pantry next to it. Those are the main rooms that we're going to have to discuss. Now, first of all, this site was already inhabited in the 8th century BCE, the period of the Israelite and Judean kings. And what you see, the round cistern, as well as these walls immediately around, are the remnants of that period. But that whole thing doesn't concern us. What really concerns us is the use of this area from about 150 BCE to 68 CE. Now, if you look from the west, you see a tow, an entire set of buildings, including the defensive tower that originally would have been hired. Now, this tower has given rise to a lot of crazy ideas. Some people think if you have a defensive tower, you must be a fortress. So they think this is a Roman fortress. The problem with the Roman fortress theory, never mind that you can't explain all the scrolls which are in the cave right nearby, but also the Roman fortress problem is that would Romans have buried their dead with the feet facing Jerusalem, and what would they do in Jewish mikvahs? So <laughs> the truth is that the Roman theory is no good, but it is based on this thing that must have been a watchtower for the buildings in the area. Exceedingly important is the fact that the middle of the building, which is beautifully built, the door jams all line up, and you can see here they would have had originally plastered floors and plastered walls. This may have pre-existed and may have been somebody's winter home where you went when it was too cold in Jerusalem and you're an aristocrat, you went down there for the fun of it. But by sometime after 150 BCE, until 68 CE, it was used by some Jewish sectarian group, which we will mention later on that most scholars think is the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. -E -E Very important is this room that we call the assembly hall. It has a little stage in the front, and it was apparently used as a dining room. You'll ask, how do I know it was a dining room? The answer is because right next door to the so-called dining room is a pantry. So you'll ask me, how do I know it's a pantry? The reason is that there were about 1,200 dishes which were excavated by Millick during the excavations in the 50s. And now we'll see some of these dishes, the real dishes, the real thing. These are plates for eating and some nice drinking glasses in case anyone's thirsty. Cooking pot which was never used because there's no black on the bottom. And some stone vessels which many scholars believe were used because they would not contract ritual impurity in the same way that some of the other items might. Now, what this all indicates is that whoever lived in this place seems to have eaten some meals together. And we have a text in the scrolls called the Rule of the Community, which requires special, ritual, pure meals to be eaten by the members of the sectarian group. So it seems to us that this is the group in question and that this was the place where they did that. Now, it's generally assumed by a lot of scholars that if Qumran was the site at which the Dead Sea sect lived, and they had this 800 scrolls, that all the scrolls must have been copied here. Before we look at this room that is said to be the room for copying, the so-called scriptorium, let me just point out immediately that many of the scrolls were not copied here. They came from elsewhere. We know that because their linguistic dialect is different from that used by the Qumran sect. Also, we know it because of the fact that some of them are older than the inhabitation of this place as we know it from coins and other types of evidence. 
So obviously some of the texts were written before. It's like if you go into the synagogue today, you look at the Torah scroll, it wasn't copied at that synagogue. It was copied somewhere else and brought there. Nonetheless, this room may have been used for copyist purposes. Now, actually, it wouldn't be the room you looked at. It would be the second floor. The whole place stood in the antiquity of two floors. Now, these things here have been variously identified as either benches around the outside of the room that may have been used for scribes to sit at or some type of shelves or tables that could have been used by the scribes. In light of the questionable nature of these tables, you could say, well, we don't really know what this was. But there were five inkwells that were found in the very same room, leading scholars to believe that this room may have served as a place for the copying of some scrolls in the period in which these buildings were used by the sectarian group that, as we already saw so far, had some kind of communal meals together. Very important for anyone living in a place like this would be a good water supply. So we know that they had these little uh, tunnels which were plastered around and with them it was possible to bring water from way up on the hill down to the site of Qumran. And it would run through these uh, troughs or tunnels and then it would go under the floor. You see there that's the floor level, the capstone we call it. And then it would feed a variety of installations. Prominent among these are mikvahs. This is a mikvah. It was originally plastered in antiquity, as you can see, and has the steps. And here's another mikvah. Now, what we know is that in Jerusalem, in the old city, many of the houses have their own mikvahs because people either went to the temple often or observed the purity laws that are connected with temple and sacrifice even in their daily life, which doesn't seem to be required by the Torah. At Qumran, they separated from the sacrifices in the temple because they thought they weren't being done right. But nonetheless, they had mikvahs, they observed all the purity laws of Jewish uh, law as if they were still in Jerusalem. Now, it's not enough to bring water just for rituals. You have to have cisterns. And this is apparently a large cistern, and you can see here that gap, that break in the stairs, which is of a half a meter, about 18 inches, and it is identified as resulting from an earthquake in 31 BCE, which must have caused or may have caused some short interruption in the inhabitation of this place, but nonetheless it continued on. So sometime after 150 to 31 BCE the place was used. And then again from a little bit after 31 BCE until 68 CE when it was destroyed. Now there are some people who think that these big places of Mick was also. But they have this crazy idea. They think that the people used the same water to wash, bathe, cook, etc. Now, I asked somebody who was expert in this, he basically told me that if you tried that for one season, you'd be dead. Remember that the water only comes during the few days of rain in the winter in this area. And he said if you stored water like that and used it for all those purposes, you would simply get typhoid or something like that. Dysentery, and you'd be dead. So I think we should not impute to our ancestors the such stupidity as some scholars seem to impute to them, uh, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Now, very important, once we've already established that we have some kind of sectarian group, and they had a lot of ritual baths and observed purity laws, and they ate meals in common based on the laws of ritual purity, then we have to start asking some other questions. One of the fundamental questions regarding the Dead Sea sect is that some scholars 
who themselves were monks, Christian monks, Christianized the scrolls and came to the conclusion that they were basically a kind of pre-Christian monastery which was celibate. And the argument for celibacy was based upon the cemetery. This is a cemetery. Every one of these clumps of rock is a, a grave. You don't believe me? During the Jordanian period, they excavated 27 graves. According to Israeli law, you may not excavate a grave. Now, when they excavated those 27 graves, the original excavators argued, and these, again, these were monks, they argued that we had a main cemetery of a thousand males and a small side cemetery with some women and children. What turns out to be the case is that of the bones that were originally investigated, 30% were women and children. Now, in the 50s, under Jordanian archaeological supervision, they sent all the bones that were found to Germany to be investigated. Those bones disappeared and were discovered several months ago. Not only that, I only heard yesterday that more bones have just been found in a laboratory in France. Why is this important? With the bones, there were notes from the excavation. And they reveal that the whole business of a main cemetery and a secondary cemetery is an invention. And that the true situation is that the whole cemetery is the same cemetery, and that you have women and children as well as men. So I think we have here proof that the celibacy thing is not true. Furthermore, of course, anybody who knows the Bible knows that it's impossible to maintain celibacy as a Jewish value. But we should remember that Josephus says that the sect of the Essenes, which is either is the Qumran sect or is something like the Qumran sect, had both celibate and non-celibate members. Now, Josephus, I think, with the celibate members, is describing people who temporarily left their wives for the purpose of their religious study. But nonetheless, it could be argued that there were some who were celibate. But it doesn't appear to be the people in this group because they have certain laws. Like, for example, they say specifically that at 18, at 20, excuse me, you should marry. And they have a text which discusses someone who commits some type of immorality with his own wife, which you can all try and imagine what it might mean. We don't know what it means. But the point is, it clearly implies marriage and not celibacy. Notice also that the burials are with the face facing east and the feet facing towards Jerusalem. Burials like that have been found around Jerusalem as well. Another important aspect of the finds, even before we get to the manuscripts, is the tefillin, indicating that these were Jews who observed the law of tefillin and put them on each day, except Sabbath and festival. Now, this is a head tefillin with four compartments separated by stitches, except that a modern tefillin would have a base. And these tefillin don't have a base, but the strap goes through the bottom like that. When you open up the tefillin, you find the four compartments in a head tefillin, just as in modern times, you see here the holes from the stitching, the strap would have gone through here. Now what's interesting about this is that at Quran there were found two types of tefillin. One is exactly like what the later rabbis commanded the Jews to use. The later rabbis understood that the oral law to require that only specific four passages could go into the tefillin and no more. 
Now what seems to be the case though is that there's another kind of tefillin in the scroll in which they have the same four but a few more verses or some additional verses in each one of the four compartments. Now these verses are innocuous. The only problem is that the rabbis tell us that it's an oral tradition from Sinai not to use them. So what this tells us is that there were two types of tefillin found in the caves. One, the tefillin of the Pharisees who are sort of the rabbinic Jews from the Talmud, the Mishnah. And second of all, the tefillin of the sectarians who occupied the place, which are a little different. But what I want you to notice is that all these people are putting on tefillin. This is the earliest real found tefillin that we've ever found. They're all putting on tefillin. The only debate is whether or not certain additional material may go in the four approved sections. And this you see when you look at the actual texts. Quite a number of the texts from the tefillin are preserved. However, you know, in those days, they used to wear tefillin all day. For which reason the tefillin are much smaller, about three-eighths of an inch, so that you can wear them and participate in your regular work. Now, of course, the main thrill in all this is the discovery of the ancient scrolls. Most of the so-called scrolls are really fragments, but some of them, like this now famous Isaiah A scroll, is truly a scroll. So let me pause to note a few things about the scroll that will show you some continuity with later Jewish scrolls, Torah scrolls, and Megillahs as we now know them. You have the stitching and the requirement that there be three columns on each sheet. You have the margin on the top, which although the photo doesn't show it, is got to be smaller by law than the margin on the bottom. You have the intercolumnar margins and lines, which are drawn with a blunt instrument before anyone begins to write. These are on virtually all the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you'll notice that the letters hang from the top down. That is to say, the line serves to line up the tops of the letters, not the bottoms of the letters. All of this is true of Torah scrolls. But this is not just any biblical scroll. First of all, you should know that if you go to the rotunda of the Israel Museum, of the Shrine of the Book, this is the scroll in the middle, except it was rotting in the sun, so they had to take it away and put a plastic one. But nonetheless, this is the scroll that was there. The other thing that makes it unique is that they actually wrote this scroll in a dialect of Hebrew different from the Bible. They wrote it into their own dialect to make it easier for people to read in their own day. And this is quite common among the Dead Sea Biblical Scrolls. There's a whole variety of texts in which you have a linguistic updating. Very important is a document which is termed the Psalm Scroll, but in many ways is not really a Psalm Scroll. It contains a number of the Psalms from Biblical Psalms, which are used in the Jewish prayer service from the end of the Book of Psalms, plus some other very beautiful poems and hymns, and these are put together into one scroll. The proof that it's a liturgy, a prayer book, is a very interesting one. Psalm 145 is recited by us regularly. It's the continuation of Ashrei. And here you have in Psalm 145 a refrain, Blessed be he forever and ever. So it seems that what happened was that Psalm 145 was recited as part of a prayer service with responses being made by the congregation. So clearly this is a set of prayer hymns rather than a book of Psalms. Very interesting is a scroll of the book of Leviticus. 
while it's more or less the same as our book of Leviticus, it contains, it makes use of the old Hebrew script from first temple times, which was revived as a result of an archaizing tendency, a tendency to be old-fashioned, which came in after the Maccabean revolt as a kind of nationalistic thing. Maccabean revolt of 168 to 164 BCE also resulted in a return from the writing in Aramaic to writing in Hebrew. But the Jews did indeed adopt an Aramaic script in the 4th and 5th centuries BCE, and almost all the scrolls are written in what we call the square or Assyrian script, a form of the script that we use today in our modern Hebrew and the Torah scrolls. Now among the documents found in one complete manuscript of the seven original scrolls and in numerous fragmentary manuscripts, especially in Cave 4, is a text called the Rule of the Community. It tells us a tremendous amount about who these people were and what they believed. First of all, the document begins by telling us the basic principles of the sectarian group, that God divided the world into good and evil, light and darkness. That it was predestined, it was decided in advance whether you're going to be good or That according to whether you're good or evil, you'll be punished or rewarded. That in order to get into the sectarian group, one has to go through a ladder of ritual purity until one gets pure enough that he can be considered a complete member and admitted not only to the solid food, but to the liquid, the drinks of the community, which are considered to be even more susceptible to ritual impurity. In addition, this document contains a whole bunch of punishments for those who violate the sectarian rules. Now, some of these may be humorous to us. For example, if a person falls asleep during the assembly, they lose one, third, one quarter of their food rations per month. Another possible transgression is gesticulating with your left hand. If you gesticulate with your left hand, your toga may fall down. The text toga falls, you may have a problem because your tunic may be ripped. And then you will be immodest. As a result of that, you receive a punishment for that. Very serious, however, are offenses against the leaders of the sect and the sect itself, which can be resulting even in expulsion from the group. A very interesting document called the Hodayora Thanksgiving Hymns tells about all types, contains poems, beautiful religious introspective poems. Now a lot of these poems, if put into the High Holy Day prayer book, nobody would be surprised. They look just like Jewish poetry. The reason is that if you trace the history of Hebrew poetry, it starts in the Hebrew Bible with the Psalms and other such poems. Continues with documents like this one, when it was stretched out and open. Continues from there into the early prayers of the prayer book, where there's some poetry. And then from there into the early Palestinian, Byzantine period Jewish poets. And then into the medieval poets that we know from the 13th, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, or even earlier than that, 10th, 11th, and 12th, in Germany and Italy. So we can trace the whole history of Hebrew poetry through texts like this. But the document seems, as most scholars think, to have been partly written, authored, that is to say, by the teacher of righteousness who's the sectarian leader. The author pictures himself or the sectarian group as being like a boat buffered around by the seas, and also, they picture themselves as being somehow persecuted, like people surrounded by animals. 
The idea that the Messianic era is soon to come is stressed. There is also in this document a view of the physical part of human life which is considerably less positive than that which is the norm in Jewish sources. Among the rituals, by the way, is a very interesting document. Among those fragments that preserve the Tzadokite fragments or Damascus document, that very same text that was found in the uh, Cairo Geniza, with which we started our lecture, there is one which describes the expulsion of a person from the sect. And when the person finally gets expelled, they say a curse, and then it says, and he will leave. It sort of reminds you about one of those movies where they have somebody being court-martialed, they break his sword and make him walk away in disgrace. It's a similar kind of idea here. One of my favorite scrolls is called the Temple Scroll. And it's time now, especially with the lights off, lest anyone does fall asleep during the assembly, thereby losing their food ration, to tell a little story. In 1960, a, a fellow named Reverend Joe Urig approached Yigael Yadid. Joe Urig gave Jerry Falwell his first job on the radio, by the way. Now, Urig came to Yadid and he said that if you'll give me $10,000 as a deposit, I can get you a scroll. And in return for the $10,000, Yadid got a few little scraps of a scroll. In 1967, when the Israeli soldiers marched into Bethlehem, Yadin arranged for some intelligence officers to come behind them to go to the house of that antiquities dealer Kondo and to get from underneath his floorboards, after considerable negotiation and interrogation, something called the Temple Scroll. Now, the Temple Scroll had been severely injured by the way in which he kept it, although some uh, of the sections of the scroll are much better preserved than others. The scroll is 66 columns long, it's a rewriting of the Torah from the beginning of the section requiring the building of a tabernacle in the end of Exodus, which is here made into the requirement to build a gigantic temple in Jerusalem, through the middle of Deuteronomy where the Jewish law sections are. Now, I happen to be involved in creating a magnum opus commentary on this. I already have 800 pages. But what I want to tell you about it is something very interesting. In this document, the author puts forward his views on a whole bunch of questions regarding the manner in which the temple should be run, the manner in which the sacrifices should be done, all kinds of questions of Jewish law. What he does is, he takes out Moses, so that he has God speaking directly the whole time, and he puts his own opinions into God's mouth. Now this particular document, in the commentary issued by Yigael Yadid, Yadin noted that over and over there are arguments in which this document takes a position which is opposite to that which is taken by the later Mishnaic laws. The Mishnah was edited in 200 CE. We are now in about 150 BCE. And yet this document is arguing against laws that we only know from later on. How could that be? It's obvious. Obviously what we only know from later on existed earlier. But much of that was not properly understood until 1984. Now I have to, for a moment, break from the order of this lecture to tell you something about the publication story. Because we last left off, effectively, when the Jordanians were in control, they had sorted all of those beautiful glass plates, 
And by 1960, it was all sorted, and as we all know, virtually none of it was published. First of all, why not? First of all, because the people who were trying to do it, some of them were drunk, some of them were sick, some of them had no money, some of them were selfish, and thought, maybe they were all selfish, that only they could publish, and if they would do it, it would be done right, but no one else would do anything. Some of them weren't interested, we can go on and on, all that stuff. Now, the Vatican conspiracy stuff is all not true. I jokingly say all the time, let's blame them for what they did, not for what they didn't do. Vatican had nothing to do with the problem. The problem, however, was sufficiently great that when Israel took over the Rockefeller Museum in 1967, this material had still not been published. So they went to these guys who were in charge and said, when are you going to get it done? They said, don't worry, two years from now it's all coming out. Well, the Israelis didn't really know better and they believed them, and still nothing happened year after year after year. In the meantime, DeVoe died and he was replaced by Benoit. And Benoit died, and John Strugnell wanted to become the new editor-in-chief. So some people wrote to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, that was debating the question of the editing of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and said, you know, this guy's an anti-Semite. So they started to discuss what to do. So Strugnell realized that the only way he was going to be confirmed as editor is if he invited Jews to join the editorial team. So he invited a number of Jews, and one of them was Alicia Kimroth. Now, in 1984, Israel was feeling very much alone in the world. And so they decided that it would be a good idea to have a massive archaeology conference, which would bring, among other things, a lot of Christian clergy to Israel. So they had this conference. There were 1,200 people there. And I was very honored to speak, but it turned out what I said was really not too important. Because right after me got up Alicia Kimron, who had edited with John Strugnell this document, which is called Mitzat Ma'asea Torah, as pertaining to the Torah, or MMT. This document was a foundation document for the Dead Sea Sect. It was a letter or something else which was preserved in six copies, in which the people who formed the sect wrote to the Jerusalem establishment. And in it they said, we have separated you because of the, from you because of the following 22 laws. And what Timron showed was that these 22 laws fit the legal approach of the Sadducean priests, as opposed to those of the Pharisaic rabbis, as they are recorded in rabbinic literature. But in this document it said, you say this, but we say that, but we're right and you're wrong. And it was a give and take, giving both points of view, which we do find in the Mishnah as well. So what emerged from this was now not only an understanding that it itself proved that Sadducee priests and their traditions were part of the origin of the Dead Sea Sect, but more than that, it proved that the Temple Scroll, the one we saw right before, with all that opposition to what we know of from Talmudic tradition, was really a document basing itself on Sadducean priestly law and Sadducean priestly biblical interpretation. So now what started to happen in the scrolls, we started to know, number one, that the scrolls set, whether they're the Essenes or not, stemmed from the traditions of this Sadducee priestly legal view. And second of all, we now knew that that view in Second Temple times was very, very developed and very complex. And there was a lot that could be learned from the scrolls about it. 
Also, on the top of this document, there was a calendar of 364 days. Now, we know that some of the Dead Sea sectarians and some other Jewish sects in Second Temple times had an idea for a reformist calendar. A calendar that would have 364 days, 30, 30, 31, those would be the months, 30, 30, 31. Now, there's only one big problem with such a calendar. Some scholars think the calendar was used. How long would it take you to discover that your calendar's no good? Everybody knows there are really 365 and a quarter days. So if you ran your calendar for 20 years, you'd realize it doesn't work. So frankly, I don't think this calendar was ever used. Now I want to talk briefly about a type of biblical interpretation of the scrolls that has also helped us to understand the history of the period. In general, in Judaism, when you have the words of a biblical prophet, we assume that on the one hand, the prophet is talking to people who lived in his own time. So if Isaiah says to somebody, you know, you're persecuting the poor or something like that, or you're not keeping the Sabbath, so we know that there were literally people at that time not doing those things, whatever he's speaking to them. And then we can then learn lessons from those passages because we realize that the message that he's presenting is eternal. These scrolls didn't operate that way. They acted as if Isaiah is talking to them and as if there was no reality of his own time and the true meaning of the biblical verse, the literal meaning, is not for the past, but it's for our own present. Now, once they followed that system, they proceeded to interpret various passages in the Bible in their own historical terms. Now, this would be great, except they didn't use names. So they have this wicked priest who comes down to the sectarian center and he attacks the teacher of righteousness, not physically, verbally. Attacks the teacher of righteousness on a day that the sect thinks is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The other guys don't think it's Yom Kippur. We get all this kind of information. We hear in this document about an attack by the Syrian Seleucid rulers on the land of Israel during the time of the King Alexander Janaeus in 88 BCE. All these things are in these texts. We call this form of interpretation Pesha. It's something which nobody knew before the Dead Sea Scrolls. Also, if you notice here, these texts don't use the regular divine name. They write the divine name in the old Hebrew script, the one which was used in First Temple times. Also found among the scrolls are certain texts that we knew in either partial Greek or even Ethiopic translations. Like the book of Enoch. The Bible says in Genesis about Enoch that he was not because the Lord took him up. Now when you get something like that,
described the way Enoch had become a divine helper. Also, there's a book called Jubilees. Enoch was an Aramaic. There's a Hebrew book called Jubilees that was also known in some Greek translations and in Ethiopic, kept by the Ethiopic church. This book surfaces here in ten partial Hebrew manuscripts, one of which has a passage which is verbatim quoted in a late Midrash in the 10th or 11th century of our era. Also, there's a book from the Apocrypha known as Tobit. Tobit survives in two Greek versions, and here at Qumran, the original Aramaic and a Hebrew translation were found. So the Dead Sea Scrolls have yielded the original text of certain decks that were known to exist in Hebrew or Aramaic in antiquity and were lost. Also, Enoch that I mentioned and Jubilees represent documents that tell all kinds of stories about the biblical accounts. And these stories include retellings of the book of Genesis, such as are found in some of the Midrashim. And one of these is an Aramaic text from the 3rd century BCE that we call the Genesis Apocrypha, that tells a lot of the biblical stories of Genesis with new interpretations. Now, the problem with this text is that it's also a unique text, and I'll tell you why. It's the only manuscript that did not survive in captivity. What do I mean by that? I mean it rotted in the museum. No other manuscripts rotted in the museum. They were all preserved. It's true that in the Jordanian period, the scholars used scotch tape and they glued the postage stamp margins on the back to hold broken fragments together. Two Israeli-Russian women who learned how to treat papyrus in Russia are working full-time, spending about $100,000 or $150,000 a year fixing the scrolls. But all those could still be preserved. This is ruined. This fragment, this particular column is fine, but some of the columns, unfortunately, will never be read, and it's a great loss and really too bad that we didn't preserve it. The scrolls are rich in messianic ideas. Basically, the messianic approach of these scrolls was to believe that there would be a great war, the war of the sons of light against the sons of darkness, which is described in a very special scroll, and in that war, all the evildoers of the various nations around would be destroyed. And then after they defeated all the nations around, they would then come up and attack Jerusalem, where they would defeat their Jewish enemies and take control of the temple and run it the way they believed it. Now this is in marked contrast to the messianic ideas of most, certainly modern Jews, who believe in the system also mentioned in the Talmud, that the world would get better and better until the Messiah would be deserved. But nonetheless, this approach is quite common in ancient times. Now, there are two different concepts in the scrolls about messianic figures. One is one Messiah, a son of David, just like all the other Jewish messianic ideas. The second one is a two-Messiah theory. One Messiah, son of in the temple in the messianic era to be assisted by a second messiah, an Israel messiah, who is basically an executive director who worries about temple, temporal, not temple, temporal affairs. Now, these two concepts, one messiah, David, and two messiah, priest in Israel, exist parallel in the various Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, 
Most of you probably realize that this Messiah stuff in the scrolls helped to bring about the Christianization of the scrolls. And all kinds of crazy things have been said about the scrolls. Remember, we're talking about Jewish documents copied for the most part in the second and first centuries BCE. For some reason, people wanted to see them as Christian because, of course, everybody knows that the greatest enigma in the history of religion is the specific developments that took place around the rise of Christianity. So what happens is you have this phenomenon of scholars when they happen to have stuff, they just put it all together. As a result of this, you've got this Christianizing interpretation of the scrolls as if the scrolls are proto-Christian. I want to show you how that theory is based on ignorance. Because when you go to your friends and you told them that you came to lecture on the Dead Sea Scrolls and it was run by Chabad and somebody got there and told you they're Jewish, the person is going to say, are you crazy? Don't you know the scrolls are Christian? And then you're going to say, but there was this guy there from NYU and he told us, and they're going to say, no, you don't understand. And this is because of all the crazy hype and baloney that's published. So let me show you an example. This document here is called Testimonia. The whole text would have just had a little more over here. It's a beautiful manuscript. Two Orthodox rabbis published an article in the LA Times that the name of Jesus is in this scroll. And indeed, right over here, you have Yud Shin Bob Ayin, which could spell his name in Hebrew. But there's only one problem. Let me read the passage. At the time when this person finished praising God, he said, Cursed be the one who will build this city. At the price of his son, his firstborn, will he build it. And at the price of his second son, or his younger son, he will put up its gates. Does anybody recognize that? That's the biblical book of Joshua. And the person, Yudshin Vav Ayin, is Yoshua for the book of Joshua. These rabbis should give back their ordination and maybe teach fourth grade when they study the book of Joshua. Now I can tell you that the LA Times never published a response. They just published this stupidity. Now, here's another interesting piece. This document from the third century BCE in Aramaic, according to Beigent and Lead, a book called The Dead Sea Scrolls Deception, which by the way is itself a deception, According to them, this little fragment was hidden by the Catholic Church. The problem is, Beijing and Lay were writing in 1986, and they claimed that this text was being kept secret. The problem is, one Catholic scholar lectured on it in 1972, and another one published it in 74. And they were saying in 86 that it was being kept secret by the Vatican. So, I mean, they make up good stories. Now, a lot of people think that this text is referring to Jesus because it mentions a so-called Son of God, Bar Elohim. In fact, we know, number one, it's 3rd century B.C., so it's impossible. Second of all, this term, Bar Elohim, is said in the Jewish prayer book every time the Torah is taken out. When we say, quoting the mystical work, the Zohar, that we do not depend on any person, nor any angel, but rather only on God himself. There are a whole lot of theories about what these words might mean here, but they certainly are not any term for one of the heroes of Christianity, 
because the document was written way before he existed. Now, another interesting text, this is really a good one. This one is called the Pierced Messiah text. They will tell you that it talks about a Messiah who was killed. The problem is it doesn't. There are ten fragments to this text, and this document is talking about the great war against the Romans. You see, they thought that in 63 BCE, when the Romans came and attacked the land of Israel, they thought that that would be the oncoming of the Messianic era. And in this text, they expected the great war to take place, and the Romans would have to be defeated. Now, how do we know it's the Romans? Because the bottom mentions the corpses of the Romans. So listen to these poor guys who didn't really know Hebrew. What happened to them? They translated these words here to mean they killed him, namely they killed the prince of the congregation, the sprout of David. So they said that the text described the killing of the Messiah. But they don't know any Hebrew grammar. According to the Hebrew language, you need to say the particle et for the direct object. And it doesn't appear here. And the correct translation is that the prince of the congregation will kill him, who is he, the leader of the Romans. But all the newspapers, including the New York Times, carried an article that here we have a Christian idea in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Furthermore, you should know, the New York Times 25 years ago claimed that among the small number of Greek texts in Cave 7 and Qumran, there was a New Testament. And this has been completely refuted. Only one word of the New Testament text in question survives, and that is the word and. Can you imagine that? They identified a fragment based on one complete word, and the word is and, ka in Greek. And on this, they concluded that it was New Testament text, which of course is absurd, because I can say it's Josephus, I can say it's anything I want, Homer, only the word and survives. Now, so forget that, they're not Christian texts. Don't believe it if anyone tells you. If they tell you, well, the guy didn't know what he's talking about, at least tell him he showed you some good pictures. Now, a whole other area that the scrolls talk about is what we call Jewish mysticism. Now, of course, today we're all being bombarded with this nonsense that claims to be Kabbalah and isn't in the news media. I can just tell you it's another lecture that we're not going to give, that all these people who think they're studying Kabbalah or going on television are not studying Kabbalah, they're studying something else. However, certain of the Dead Sea texts have certain ideas that point towards ideas that are found in the Kabbalistic works from later on. This is something called the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice. It's a document that relates praises that are to be recited on the Sabbath. Now these prayers describe, just like our modern prayer books, Jewish prayer books, they describe the angelic praise of God in heaven. And these beautiful poems have a lot in common in their language and style with certain of the early Jewish mystical texts. Another example of the same phenomenon is something called the Book of Mysteries. Uh, you should know that in 1989 the editorial team was reorganized and every year now about 10 volumes are coming out and by the year 2000 the entire scrolls corpus will be in the hands of Oxford University Press in the series now which is edited by Emmanuel Tov, a professor of Bible at the Hebrew University. 
As part of that project, I was asked to edit these mysteries texts. These very fragmentary texts command us to know the mysteries and study the mysteries and to teach them. What are the mysteries? They are the mysteries of the divine. They are the mysteries of Israel's history and the world's history. They are the mysteries of nature and the way the world works. Like one big either because of the state of preservation or because of the author's ideas, the mysteries are not here. So we have a problem. Learn and study them, but they're not here. The final, oh, sorry. The final document I want to look at is a very enigmatic one called the Copper Scroll. It was found in Cave 3 of Qumran, and it represents, incised from the inside out, in Hebrew, a list of 68 buried treasures. Now these buried treasures include some terminology that indicate that they have something to do with the temple. And most scholars think that during the revolt of 66 to 73, temple treasures were buried all around, and that these were the key to where to find them. So some people figure if that's the case, we should be able to find the treasures. So they went out and they hunted for them, and of course they found nothing. But the document says that another copy was hidden somewhere else. So it's perfectly possible that people who hid the document went out and got the money. Now if it's the case, we have no idea what happened to it. We can only hope that they used it to help the country recover and the Jewish community recover in the aftermath of the eruption of the Roman destruction which took place during the war of 66 to 73. We have no idea. The document is phenomenal because it teaches us all kind of Hebrew terminology pointing the way towards the Hebrew dialect that we call Bishnaic Hebrew. But the treasures themselves, the true meaning of this enigmatic document is still very much under debate. Now I want to give you just a brief summary therefore of some of the main issues that I think are really important to us when we take a look at this material and what it teaches us. Be aware that I have only spoken here of a few scrolls and a few conclusions of a field that is now producing volume after volume of scholarship, not to mention some of the documents which are themselves taking volume after volume to publish. But what I want you to realize is that on the one hand we see a certain kind of continuity of Judaism. We see people immersing in mikvahs. We see them going and observing the Sabbath. We have Sabbath laws. We have laws pertaining to courts of testimony. We have people putting on filling. We have all these basic practices in Judaism. We have all kind of information here about the history of Hebrew literature and Jewish law and Jewish biblical interpretation. That's one point. On the other hand, there's a very interesting fact. Precisely because the people who gathered this library opposed certain views of the Pharisees who later became the rabbis, we get the chance to historically prove the early age of those ideas. Since our Judaism is that Judaism, the Judaism of the combination of the written and oral law, the fact that we have these Qumran documents allows us to say without question that if you go back to 150 BCE or maybe even 200 BCE, that many practices that we only know from the Mishnah in 200 CE were already definitely being practiced. Now we would love to go back even further. We only have the documents we have. But what it proves is that the Mishnaic and Talmudic tradition was not created after the destruction of the Temple in 70, but it represents an authentic continuation of the kind of Judaism that existed way, way before the Temple was destroyed. 
A final point, and I think the last one that I want to make is, there was a lot of arguing about Jewish ideas in this period. But the argument was between people who were devoted to observe the Torah. It wasn't about whether to observe the Torah or not. It was about, if I'm going to put on tefillin, can I add a few extra verses? It was about, if I'm going to prepare to eat a meal on the Sabbath, and I know I'm not allowed to cook, can I peel the vegetables? As the rabbi said, well, do I have to be stricter and peel even the vegetables that I'm going to eat raw before the Sabbath, as these Qumran sectarians said? Everybody agreed, for example, that you could save a life on the Sabbath, even if it meant setting aside Sabbath laws. But the question was, wait a minute, can I just do anything I want to do that, or should I try to minimize Sabbath violation, as these particular sectarians believe? So the point I'm making is that there was here a difference of opinion, yes, among different groups. But it's a difference of opinion of groups who are dedicated to observing the Torah as a means of bringing sanctity into their lives and holiness into their lives. And it's not a debate over whether to be observant or not. It's a debate on how to be observant. Thank you very much. And if we can get the lights on, we can take some questions. Okay. Questions? Yes, sir? How many scrolls are there? Well, depends what you mean by scroll. There are remnants of what in antiquity would have been 800, 800 scrolls. However, in terms of what is complete and what is partial, today we really have 11 or 12 scrolls, and the rest of it is pieces of scrolls. Other questions? Yeah. Well, most people think that these so-called sectarians, so you can turn this off, we have less noise. Huh? That's not how you do it. How do you turn this off? Where is the front? Most people think, oh yeah, that's a good way to blow the bowl. It's a good way to bowl. You pull out the plug, you blow the bowl. Um, most people think that these sectarians are the group known as the Essenes. But there is some disagreement about that. Some still some argument about it. But these are people separated from the mainstream and the Jerusalem establishment and went off into this desert in like 150 BCE and that's how they lived. But were they the only ones there at that time? The only ones where? At that desert? Yeah. That in their building, right. in their little settlement, they were 200 to 400 of them and no one else. And they weren't religious at all? They, they were religious. religious. That's what I'm just saying. They're completely religious. You said they were a Sectarians doesn't mean they're not religious. They're a religious oh, sect. Well, you know, you mean they were. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Sectarians are religious, oh, not non-sectarian. <laughs> okay. Other questions, sir? What relationship was there between the Essenes and the people on Masada? The Essenes and the people of Masada. This is a very good question. Let's just go back for a moment. We're making the assumption now that these people are the Essenes. The what the relationship is between these people at Qumran and the people of Masada. Now, Masada, everybody should know, was the last Jewish fortress to fall in the war of 73 CE. When Masada was excavated by Yigael Yadin, they found 22 scrolls or parts of scrolls there. Among those, there were some texts well, one, not counting the Bible, 
One text was exactly the same text that was found in Qumran, and a few other texts were a very similar type of text. Now, it was the opinion of Yadin that this proved that after Qumran was destroyed in 68, some of Qumran, the so-called Essenes, ran away to Masada and ended up fighting there at the end. Now, the group that held Masada, according to Josephus, are the Sakarii. They were a group whose basic legal system was Pharisaic, but they were called Sakarii because they had daggers, Latin Sika. Now, these dagger-carrying revolutionaries occupied Masada. So therefore, there are two possibilities here. My own opinion is, if they only relate, they're all Jews, right? And they all oppose Rome, but they're not the same people. But Yadin's view is that a few of them ran away from Qumran to Masada. It's not impossible. I don't think the evidence that he uses makes any sense. You don't, just because some two people have the same religious text doesn't mean that one ran away to another one. So probably all over the country. The texts were probably all over Israel. But nonetheless, Yadin fell into the trap of just assuming if they have the same text, you had to bring it yourself. But nonetheless, it's not the same people. This is one sectarian group, they were anti-Roman. That's another revolutionary group that's anti-Roman, the Sitarian. Okay? Other questions? Yes? Uh, do you consider Josephus to be a reliable source? Well, this, do I consider Josephus to be a reliable source? Uh, it's like, do you consider the New York Times to be a reliable source? If you are a historian, you must like, examine carefully anything which a previous source says and determine what's reliable and what's not. Now, first of all, the vast majority of material in Josephus is copied from someone else. So much so that when he says, as we said above, it's not above, because it was above in the other guy's book. So if you look at Josephus carefully, you have to determine who the source is. Now, if the sources say one Maccabees, one Maccabees was an official history of the Maccabean house. He doesn't have two Maccabees. Therefore, he doesn't know, Josephus, that the Maccabean revolt started as a Jewish fight about assimilation and Hellenization. He doesn't know it. So I could say he's partly reliable, partly not. On the other hand, when he gets to the Herodian period, his source is Herod's Secretary of State, a non-Jewish Secretary of State named Nicolaus of Damascus. I, I got to realize it's like reading Henry Kissinger's view of the Nixon years. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but I got to know how to use it. If the guy tells me there was a battle on June 17th and 250 people died, I can assume it's true. But if he tells me King Herod was the greatest Jew that ever lived, I know I have a problem. So, and Josephus once in a while interrupts the narratives that he copies to say, wait a minute, I don't have to believe all this. Sometimes. Then when he gets to the revolt against Rome, in which he starts out as a general, and then afterwards concludes that the revolt was a bad idea, and surrenders himself to the Romans, so by the time that that happened, so there's no question anymore, we can't trust him because he's writing about himself. He's writing his own autobiography in a very complex situation. So it's not, you trust him, you not trust him, you know. I just want to say one thing, you know, Josephus was a traitor and that he turned himself over to the Romans, it's true. But, since we just had an Israeli election, right? Josephus essentially took a left-wing position on the Jews' revolt against Rome. The revolt failed. Even if he took the position ex post facto, you don't have to, it doesn't make you crazy or disloyal to take a position that a revolt that eventually dis resulted in the destruction of the Jewish temple 
And the exile of the Jewish people was a bad idea when compared to some form of accommodation. So I think, you know, the judgment of Josephus, you know, he's all bad or all good. He's a very complicated person, but, uh, you know, we have to uh, be a bit more careful. One of my friends once said in a lecture about Josephus, the big accusation about Josephus is he turned himself over to Romans rather than commit suicide. He said, who are we to say another guy should commit suicide? It's a bit arrogant. So it's, he's complex. Other questions? Yes, sir. Let me begin by making a statement. The whole ethical teaching of Jesus is that of the Pharisaic rabbis, the Talmud. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. Hillel says, don't do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. The whole business, giving charity, helping the poor, all that stuff, the social message, the straight Pharisaic rabbinic Judaism. The Qumran people are the ones who say, see this guy here, he's impure. I won't sit with him at the table. I won't let him into my meal. It's the complete opposite of what they sold you already. Now, take Sabbath observance. Jesus wants to pick grain on the Sabbath to help them feed people. The Pharisees say, you can save a life on the Sabbath, but you can't buy the Sabbath just because someone's hungry, right? The Dead Sea sectarians, they even go so far as to say that if you're going to save a life on the Sabbath, you're trying to avoid Sabbath violation. If you line up these views, he's way on the left, and they're way on the right, these people, with the Pharisees in the middle. So the whole notion... Now, on the other hand, having said that, of course there are, for a very simple reason. The basic ideas which Christianity starts with are the Jewish ideas. And the basic ideas of Judaism were agreed upon by all Jews. So if you start to talk about certain ideas, you know, God, Messianic era, um, you know, this kind of stuff, you're going to find that you're going to find it's the same. He goes to the synagogue, he reads the Torah. They have a Torah reading on Shabbat also. You know, there's a common, but the notion that he is closer to this group and therefore should be traced to this group is all false. Massively. And I was just reading an article by some Christian scholar who argues this very strongly. Right? It's completely false. Okay? If you ask me if he was ever there, I can't answer you. I don't know where he went on vacation. I mean, it sounds like a joke, but I mean, that this is, it's preposterous for people to speak as if they know everything about somebody in antiquity. He could have been there. So what? You know what I'm saying? They visit his cousin. We have no such record. It's all imagination. But... He, he, the connection of Jesus to this group or John the Baptist to this group is very, very questionable. In fact, I think it, it should really be discarded. It's really just because you have... This is what happened. But let me just tell you a funny story. I wrote this book called Reclaiming the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was published by the Jewish Publication Society Press so they can get a paperback. The paperback is double base. You can get any bookstore. Anyhow, the marketing director of Jewish Publication Society was on a bus from Masada to Jerusalem. The guide, they passed by Qumran, the guide says, there's Qumran where Christianity started. So she ran up to the front of the bus and said, how could you say such a thing? You know what the guide answered? There are more Christians on this bus than Jews. <laughs> it sells books. If you write a book that says that this is about James the Just, the brother of Jesus, who had a separate sect, and people will buy your book, you'll make money. There are more people to buy that than a book that says, Let's see what this tells us about the early history of Tefillin. Let's see what it tells us about the mikvah, about Torah reading, about Shabbat. There's more being a market out there. So let's sell books. Why not? That's what you're talking about. 
And now, I want to say one thing, having said all that, there is legitimate room for scholars of the New Testament who want to know about Judaism in the pre-Christian period to read these documents and make comparisons. And I have a lot of friends who do this. This is very good scholarship. It's all fine. But that's not the type of thing that's, you know, it's in these books. Okay? Other questions? There was one over here. Yeah. No. The only, there are other documents besides these from Judean Desert, from the contracts of the Bar Kokhba period. That is to say, these are really documents that would have been written in the first century, second half of the first century of our era. And some of them, the last were discovered during Operation Scroll, right before Arafat was given the Jericho area. The Israelis have 200 people in the field. Arabs and Israeli archaeologists searching for text. And a friend of mine, who's the only person after the Yadin to ever find anything, Hanan Eishel, found some scrolls. But these are business documents, not really scrolls. This stuff, nothing was found since the... Uh, Unfortunately. Okay. Other questions? Unless you know. <laughs> Sir? You mentioned uh, the uh, tension in uh, the 1980s. Right. The Herschel Shags. Yeah, Herschel Shags really did lead the attack yeah. against the situation. And he turned his magazine, he even got so excited about that he had a stroke. He turned his magazine into a flag waver for freeing the scrolls. And he did a good job. In the end, he got sued by Alicia Kimron because he infringed a copyright, which shouldn't have been done no matter what because it had nothing to do with anything else. He thanks the lawyer. And he lost the suit for $55,000, which is currently on appeal. But believe me, he made more money from the attention than the $55,000. And uh, he did do a very good job in bringing this to the public in terms of interest. And he's also written a book on the scrolls, which is not a bad book. But interestingly, his book on the scrolls, I wrote in a review in the foreword, the Jewish newspaper, that it could have been written before the scrolls were released, which is rather funny since he worked to release the scrolls. He wrote me back a letter and said, I'm right. So I don't really know why he did that. He should have put in more of the new stuff, but what are you going to do? It's his book. You know, I actually read the book in advance and critiqued it. That was one of my criticisms in advance. But Okay, mine uses all the scrolls. Yeah. A new song. Supposedly there was a new song. Well, here's the story. You know, at the end of the book of Psalms, there are 150 Psalms in a book of Psalms, a regular Jewish book. But the Gemara tells us that two of them were one, so it'd be 149. The Greek Septuagint also has the first two Psalms as one, and then when it gets to the end, has a Psalm called 150, which is today called 151, that was known only in Greek. They found the original Hebrew. That's the one you're talking about. But let me tell you, why is this psalm different from all other psalms? They also found from, known from the so-called Syriac, Psalms 1-4, that's Aramaic, it's a Christian Aramaic translation. They found what's called Psalms 151, 2, 3, and 4, which are really, by our count, they would be. They're not in the Bible. 2, 3, 4, and 5. So they found those too. Now let me explain what these are. These are apocryphal psalms. These are not ancient psalms for the first temple period. They're extra ones that were written later, but they are fantastically beautiful poetry, and they were found in the original Hebrew in the Qumran in that psalm scroll, 
which as I said, we think is really a, a prayer book rather than a biblical songs manuscript. However, what's the difference? These are beautiful poems that have been found. There are also some other beautiful prayers, the morning prayers and festival prayers, speaking about the ingathering of the exile, just as like the regular Jewish prayer book does. A lot of beautiful poetry there. Other, yeah. Is there anything in contradiction to a Torah or a Midrash? Let's start with a Midrash. Many times the Midrash contradicts the Midrash. In the same way that you can have differing interpretations or differing significance which the Midrash learns from a given passage, that can happen here. Now, in question whether you have anything in these documents which contradicts the Bible, let me explain something. Whenever somebody writes an apocryphal book, he or is, not she, let's be honest, he, right, is interpreting the Bible. Now those interpretations might contradict our understanding of the Bible, but it can't, by definition, contradict a literal understanding of the Bible of somebody else. So the answer is like yes and no, because you'll read the biblical book and you'll read what this person claims the Bible is saying, and you'll say this is in contradiction. But if he were here, he would say, oh no, it doesn't contradict. Okay? A better question, if you'll allow me, is whether or not any of this material contradicts the rabbinic laws. The answer to that is yes, because a very simple matter. Sometimes these people are arguing with the view of the rabbis on a particular situation, and often these people are stricter. But again, the contradictions will come. Look at an example. The rabbis have the smallest court is three. These guys, the smallest court is ten. Now, the fact that Maimonides will eventually say that you have priests, Levites, and Israelites in the court, right? So these guys have a court of, uh, it's why they have a court of ten, which is based on the book of Ruth, which well, is also a court of ten, right? But the rabbis have a court of three, so it's a contradiction. But on the other hand, you don't have one of them saying you don't need two witnesses like the Torah says, and the other one says you do. They all agree you need two witnesses like the Torah says. That's not a contradiction. So th there are differences of opinion. Right, and that's why these documents do not represent the same approach as that of Talmudic Judaism. Often what we learn about the rabbis and their views is precisely because these guys are arguing against it. And also many times the Talmud tells us about these arguments, and we only know half of what can be known, and when you get this text, you know the rest of it. Because you see their own argument from the point of view that the rabbis have summarized in giving their opposition. <coughs> okay? There was one more, I think. If not, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Here is the first one. You're on the table. You're all welcome to it.